You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. to Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Jonathan and Nami. This episode will cover BOW! Part 1 of Golden Sun, the second installment of Fierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. Please note that if you are watching this as a webcast, there is a chance you will hear some spoilers for other books in the Red Rising series during our live webcasts. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits have been edited out. If you're watching us live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube as Sagas and Sass, or email us sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please know that the views expressed in this show are those of the host's individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Yeah, YouTube started handing out handles, by the way. So we literally are youtube.com backslash at sagas and sass now yay none of the no more of this like eighty thousand character uh youtube link (laughs) so don't forget that we now have a patreon with 10 tiers ranging from one dollar a month to forty dollars a month it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return you can check it out at patreon.com slash geek saga underscore entertainment and now let's drive into the first three chapters of golden sun As Golden Sun begins, we learn that Darrow is now commanding a starship in the Society's Academy. After the Institute, which teaches the Golds to survive and conquer, the Academy teaches peace and interstellar exploration. Oops, sorry, wrong series. It teaches them war. Now, Darrow, along with Roke and Tactus from his time at the Institute, and a new friend named Victra, is facing his final test which involves leading a fleet with dummy munitions to see which group of students can well last the longest. Unfortunately for Darrow, the Bolognias sent their son Carnus, Cassius's older brother, to the academy with the order to, well, beat Darrow because the person he happened to have to kill in the passage at the ensuite was, you know, Julian. And as it turns out, Carnus and Darrow's fleets are the last two left in this final academy test. And while Roke insists that they are flying into a trap, Darrow has laid a trap of his own. Traps within traps within traps, y'all. And for a moment, it seems as if they've won. Until Carnus springs a second trap, one that involves ramming Darrow's ship with a nearly destroyed ship of his own. Darrow immediately orders an evacuation, but he knows that many of the low colors under his command will die. As he is trying to save his valet, a rose, a.k.a. a high pink, named Theodora, the collision occurs and they are thrown across the bridge. When Darrow comes to, the bridge escape pod is gone because fuck you, Taxis, and he has to carry Theodora to his quarters where he has another pod. They make it with the help of some greys, but they can't all fit in the pod, and Darrow even has to argue with them about Theodora getting one of the seats. As soon as they're clear of the ship, Darrow has one of the greys load him into a starshell with a plan to launch himself at Carnus's bridge. But before he can, the proctors override his computer and, well, uh, that's that. Game over, Darrow. You lost. Back at the academy, Rogue tries to convince Darrow that coming in second place is something to be proud of. But Darrow not only knows that it won't be enough for Augustus, he is also upset about the 833 men and women who were not gold who got a little test. 
he goes off on his own to soak in a hot spring pool in the academy gardens. But there's no relaxation to be had as a bunch of balonas show up to beat the shit out of him. Granted, Darrow does try to put up a fight, but uh, he's injured, naked, and his only weapon is a stick. And more than all of that, he's one against seven. And soon he's on the ground getting pissed on because, uh, hey, guess we weren't going to get through this book without that happening to someone. Splitting, uh, I guess? We open this book with a battle. Granted, it's a fake one, but a little bit more jumping into things right from the get-go than the first book. It's a little bit off-putting at first. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't like it, but it's definitely a big change from the way book one started. So we're in this kind of faux battle, and Darrow thinks he's going to beat Karnas. And man, like Roke comes in with the hard truths when he says, guard your hubris and remember Pax, pride kills. So telematis. I know. Like always RIP Pax, honestly. So telematis. And it was totally Darrow's being so sure of himself that allowed Pax to die. But this is again, like traps within traps within traps. And, this is a very Darrow is as Darrow does moment because Pax is like, this is, or uh, sorry, Roke is like, this is obviously a trap. And Darrow's like, yeah, I know. By the way, I have a trap of my own. He just didn't think to tell his friends slash lieutenants that he had a trap laid of his own. Like, did he think that in this academy game, his BFFs from the Institute were going to call up Karnas and be like, hey, hey, by the way, we're also laying a trap for you. You better have backup. It, it was pretty silly because all I could think of was Darrow just being like, I want to be the dude with the plan. Only I get the plan. You don't get the plan. It's my plan. And especially when at the beginning of the battle, he is thinking about having his people who are close to him, close with him. And he says, my lieutenants monitor my fleet. At any other time, they'd be on their personal destroyers or leading men in leechcraft. But at the moment of victory, I want my fellows near. Yet when my lieutenants stand here at my side, I feel that separation, that deep gulf between their world and mine. So I get it. I get that there's still that I'm a red really deep down and you all are gold thing going on. But at the same time, you literally brought them into your bridge for this moment but you didn't tell them what you were going to do it seems more like anything like the way he does it the way he talks about it makes it sound like he's like i want everybody here to share in my victory but the way he goes about things makes it clear that he's like i want everyone to see me victorious and it's like pretty i actually hadn't really thought about it that way what is it with young warlords that don't share their tactics with their subordinates in series we like? If everybody communicated... There wouldn't be a story. That's that's the answer. It's convenient plot devices. There's got to be a better way to write it, though. Please, somebody, someday, figure out. <laughs> While he didn't share his plans with everybody, he thinks about how in that moment where they think they're victorious... Hot oops, though. As the victory is transmitting, like throughout the ship, he's saying it's not just my victory. Each man and woman shares it in their own way, because that's that's how the society works. To prosper, your superior must prosper. He found his patron in Augustus, so the low colors find their own patron in Darrow. 
and it breeds this loyalty of necessity to golds that the color system itself can't create by mere dictation. So, you know, as his star rises, everybody else is on his ship or in his fleet, really at the Academy will rise with it. But that's still the low colors. You still have your lieutenants who are maybe not your equals in terms of, sure, you're the boss by like one step. They're your assistant directors and you're the director. They're the assistant managers to the manager, whatever whatever they call Dwight in the office. Isn't he the assistant to the assistant manager? Yeah. <laughs> it's odd because I think in a bigger way, though, it goes back to like, I don't think he really believes that. I think Darrow's whole thing as a character, the whole point of Darrow's story from book one has been the system is broken. He sees that this is what the system is supposed to do. And that's what he was trying to do in including in having his lieutenants be there to witness the victory and therefore take part. But when it comes down to it, he doesn't believe in the system. He doesn't believe in the society as a construct and he doesn't believe it's effective. So he doesn't believe that this is a shared victory. He believes it is his victory. And like all of this monologuing, I was just like, boy, you're trying to convince yourself. You don't believe in any of this. Darrow does a lot of that trying to convince himself of one thing or another. Like, don't get me wrong. I think he's a very interesting protagonist, but I do not like him because all of book one is just him and having like his own like little murder party. It's very (laughs) funny, actually, because like I read book one a very long time ago and I had forgotten how absurdly violent it is. And I came back and I was just like, hey, bud, bud, can we take a chill pill? No. Okay. Yeah, this series is not for the faint of heart. As they say, don't be a pixie. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm going to go be a pixie. <laughs> I do have one thing that has baffled me about this whole thing. How is Carnus running a fleet at the Academy? Hasn't he graduated at this point? If you want to go to the Academy, you can go to the Academy. And yeah. he just never had gone. Oh, so it's not a it's not a next step for all peerless golds that you know. Because you also hear about how like Mustang isn't at the academy. She's oh. going to poli sci school. Yeah, Mustang's at poli sci school. Jackal is at, you okay. know, um, here's my weird tech underground school. He's getting right. no, not even tech. He is getting a master's in business administration. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Help. I see no lie. So after they escape the ship, which by the way, this is not not violent because when their ship gets rammed, a whole fuck ton of people die. The first thing that happens is that Darrow is saying like he sees a blue just like splattered across the computer consoles, whatever they're called. And then Tactus, fucking Tactus, like him and Victor and Roke get in the escape pod. And in the like couple moments that Darrow is unconscious because he tried to save Theodora, Tactus is like, boop, bye forever, bitch. Because Tactus is as Tactus does too. And then Darrow has to like throw poor Theodora with her just like crushed leg BT dubs. Now, I mean, this would be like if when you broke your elbow in New Orleans, I just threw you over my shoulder and started running around the French Quarter with you. (laughs) (laughs) funny you say that years ago i got injured playing basketball and the referee was an ex division one player who was like 610 and he saw how badly i got hurt and he immediately like picked me up like i was luggage and just like (laughs) took me to my car like i was a child it was and i was not a child i was an adult at that point (laughs) 
And then as Darrow is rushing through the ship to try to get to his quarters, to his little escape pod, he actually has to have Grays help him because people are trying to stop him. You know, they're like, what do we do, Dominus? They get these Grays to help them and then they get there and there's this whole argument over who's actually going to go in the escape pod. And they're just like, Theodora's a slave. She shouldn't get a spot. And Darrow's like, fuck you, man. She's my slave. And I know in his head, he's thinking he's kind of disgusted that he has to like say it that way, but he knows that's the only way it's going to get through to them. It was sad. These might not have been good people, these greys, but it's still like, ugh. And the one that gets left behind just like salutes them as they go. And probably that one should have been the one that got on the shuttle because I'm pretty sure the one that got left behind was one of the better ones out of the crew of miscreant greys here. In the three minutes of knowing him, I definitely disliked him the least. He's the least frustrating of the frustrating characters in this particular scene so they get back to the academy and roke is trying to make darrow feel better assuage his guilt i guess but he's so he's so bad at it because he's such a gold and it's one of those (laughs) moments where roke you're seeing him from darrow's perspective but he's always been pictured as this gentle kind soul but then when Darrow is like 833 people died or something, Roke is like, I mean, they chose lives of service. They knew the danger. They died for a cause. And Darrow's like, what the fuck cause? It was a game. I mean, that's not exactly what he says. I'm strongly paraphrasing here. But when Darrow says what cause in my brain, he was saying, what the fuck cause? This was a game. It's a fucking video game. And that's what it's supposed to be. But people actually died here. And Roke says the cause is to keep their society strong. So playing at war is keeping their society strong. And this is kind of the first moment when Darrow is like, this is Roke. He's very kind, but he is so blind. Pardon the rhyme. And they didn't have a choice. These people, they were conscripted. Darrow says they were conscripted. I mean, I assume most, a lot of them were, but I assume others were not. They absolutely were. The thing is, they're conscripted automatically because they're all stuck within their case. Yeah, but hypothetically, there are many greys. Some are just guards in the mines. Others are green berets, essentially. I mean, there's different levels of them. I've always assumed that they had some choice within their color, for the most part, if you weren't a red. And I mean, I still think there's a difference between some choice but is it really a choice of all the choices yeah well and two think about the grays and the blues are i think really good examples of this because with the grays sure some of them just get to work in the mines but that's considered like a trash job if you are a talented person you still have to be a guard or a soldier or whatever if you're a blue you're gonna be piloting a ship no matter what. It depends, I guess, on how much you're worried about dying. If you're talented, you're not going to be piloting a civilian ship or a merchant ship. You're going to be piloting something in the academy. Or if you're even more talented, you're going to be piloting an actual major warship. They don't have a choice about what their job is, period. I don't even think they really have a choice where they go because if you're super fucking good, the society isn't going to let you just be piloting a merchant ship somewhere. Also, like, regardless, I kind of viewed it as, like, kind of like a war draft. Like, they're constantly doing war shit. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, maybe, like, a handful will sign up voluntarily because they're like, fuck yeah, I want to do war shit. But the majority of people are the people who, if they're signing up voluntarily, it's the fake voluntary sign up that we have for our army, which is like, oh, we'll pay for your education because you have no other choice. And now you're our slave for 10 years. Like, it's it's that kind of stuff. Like, it's not yeah. a real choice. It's a It's the illusion of choice just enough to keep people content. 
Well, and as we see, not really all of them are all that content. Yeah. And I think my other thing, oh, the other thing I wanted to say, like me personally, like I always was kind of susseroke, like even in book one, he would keep saying like very sort of like off brand things every now and then. And like, I don't remember any specifics about it, but like even in book one, you get the vague sense that like, yes, he's like one of the kindest of them, but he's still one of them. Mm -hmm. And I like, to me, like, Hearing him be this blunt about it, it was definitely one of those, like, yep, he's definitely coming out and saying it now. But I was like, yeah, no, I've kind of always seen this coming because he's always looked kinder and looked chiller, but he never actually was, if that makes sense. And even in this particular exchange, when Darrow was like, you don't understand, he kind of gaslights Darrow a little bit. Of course I don't understand. You never let anyone in. Not me, not Severo. Look how you treat a Mustang. You drive friends away as though they were enemies. Is it gaslighting if it's true though? Because, uh... I think in this particular instance, it's gaslighting because what the fuck does that have to do with the fact that 800 plus low colors just died for a game? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying that Roke is a good person, but I'm just saying that he never wasn't what he said he was on the tin. I'm pretty sure the only gold we've seen that seems to have a heart is, like, Leah, who's dead, and Mustang, who's, like, fucking off right now. You know, like, Roke never was anything except what he said he was on the tin, and, like, in this particular case, like, he is right. Like, Darrow never let him in. Like, so of course he won't understand. Like, to him, they're not raised to view low colors as people. And so as much as I'm like, ew, disgusting, terrible person, I'm also like, you're a product of the way that you're raised. And so that makes a lot of sense for him. I still don't like him because that's a shit point of view to have, despite your being raised that way. But he is right because Darrow hasn't let him in. I think he might be a cold-hearted bitch, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> Well, so then like Darrow, <laughs> he separates himself from his friends because as we all know, obviously it goes super well for Darrow every time he walks away from his friends to go do something by himself. I'm going to go soak in the hot springs. And then he gets attacked by seven Bologna. Also, it's like, dude, Carnus, come come the fuck on. Why are you this awful, Carnus? And and the rest of them, Cagney is one of the other ones that's with him. Like, they're all fucking awful, but the two of them seem like the worst in that little group shebang over here. Why are you doing this? You're so awful. But also, how is this allowed? The fact that they were just like, yeah, it's totally cool if we beat you within an inch of your life and piss on you in this fucking technically public place. Just What? I mean, we've clearly established that gold society is whack. So I agree, but there's still part of me that's like, what they allowed in the Institute was one thing, and this isn't the Institute anymore. At this point, they've graduated. They are either peerless guard or they're not. And yeah, but I don't think, I don't think it's a, a case of allow or not allow. I think it's something that just happened. And at once you've left the quote protection of the Institute such that it was as in they view this as you're adults and peerless scarred and you'll do what you do and there are certain rules of the society about honor darrow's a man he then challenged Carnus to a duel and they'd fight it out with razors i don't think society gets in in the way or involved it's sort of a dog eat dog world frankly this doesn't surprise me considering what all the untested kids did in the institute what does that breed it breeds savagery like you can't put people through something like that and basically tell them they're allowed to do whatever the fuck they want to people in the name of victory and not expect them to continue that mindset. 
And that's also the purpose of the Institute. They're just living up to what they were taught. And with the exception of Karnas, because I do think Karnas is like a different level of psychopathic monster, because he is the one that sort of, as we know it, started the conflict with the Augustus family by killing their oldest son. But like with the exception of him, the rest of them, they're all acting in defense. Like to them, this is like righteous rage. Like this is the monster that killed... Except it's so fucking hypocritical because every single one of them, if they graduated from the Institute, they had to kill somebody too. I think you're doing this thing where you're trying to apply normal morals to a group of people that have been shown to clearly be hypocritical and amoral. No, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to make a point. The Bolognas are hypocritical as fuck. All the golds are. Golds, period. Golds equal hypocrites. Except for maybe Severo. I just think Severo is vibing. He is just (laughs) experiencing the internet. He is finding cool memes to send to Darrow. I really, really enjoy this little dude. You say cool memes, but if you read it carefully enough, um, it's unicorn porn. (laughs) Yes. I I did catch that. I did. Are you really friends unless you send somebody unicorn I mean, do you really want to start that here? <laughs> Next time on Sagas and Sass, we all rate the unicorn porn that we send each other. <laughs> yeah, no, please no. That was, I do not want unicorn porn. But no, uh, Servo is clearly thriving and I love that for him because I'm pretty sure he's the only one I actually like. Before we move on to the next set of chapters, one thing I wanted to talk about was the peeing on people, because obviously we saw that in book one. Hey, I think like, they're just obsessed with it because it's gold like them. Oh my god. I mean, the thing is, like, animals use urine for two things. Marking their territory and sex. When mm-hmm. cats spray, it's like, uh, hi, I'm here for you sort of thing. Lobsters. Female lobsters pee on the quote-unquote doorsteps of male lobsters' little underwater homes to get their attention because male lobsters are always like clack, clack, clack at each other and like murdering each other all the time for no good reason. So female lobsters are like, hmm, I need to mate. I'm going to pee on your doorstep. I figured it out. Carnus has been flirting this whole time. <laughs> yeah. I get the marking your territory thing, but that said, animals do not pee on other animals on purpose, at least not in my experience, I had a two cats, I've been talking like a decade ago, who fucking hated each other. One was a girl cat, one was a boy cat. They were both fixed, but they fucking hated each other. And despite the fact that we lived in like a 3,200 square foot house and had about eight litter boxes all across the house to try to like keep the cats from doing the thing, the female cat and the male cat would pee on furniture, would like fight pee, but never on each other, right? Yeah, it was the fucking worst. It was the fucking worst. So it's just like, what the fuck is with this society? And like, we're going to debase you by urinating on you? Wow, guys, you're so hoity-toity. You're so high society. Congratulations. Moving on to chapters four through seven. So Darrow has been humiliated by the Bologna, but his trials are far from over because between his loss at the Academy and, you know, the whole getting peed on thing, Augustus is ready to offload his contract. Not only will this surely cause problems for Darrow professionally, it also means he loses Augustus's protection, which will surely lead to the Bologna's actually killing him the next time they come around. 
Obviously, Augustus doesn't care about any of this, and it probably doesn't help that his politico, Pliny, is there poking at Darrow and just generally making things worse for him all around. No matter what Darrow says, Augustus has made up his mind, and the contract will be terminated in three days, at which time it will go up for auction. While many of his fellow Lancers take bets on how long Darrow will last once Augustus cuts him free, Rogue insists that he won't be abandoned. Meanwhile, Victress seems to have some sort of plan to help him out, though it does involve leaving the safety of the Citadel, grounds for a little field trip to Lost City, where Victor leaves him with her contract, who appears to be, wait for it, the Jackal. And the Jackal being well, himself lays it all bare for Darrow, basically right away. It turns out that he's pulled a Disney-esque move, buying up a big chunk of the communications industry, and on top of that, he's become all buddy-buddy with a crime syndicate. And while getting rid of Pliny is the bait he dangles in front of Darrow, his true end goal is to take down the Sons of Ares. I think he's more Elon Musk than uh, Disney, but that's all right. Oh my god, he's Elon Musk. I wrote this before the Twitter thing went through, so... Oh my god, I can totally imagine Adrius just like using daddy's money. Being a little dickhead on Twitter using daddy's money and having weird fanboys who are like, oh my god, we love the jackal. The jackal's so good at everything. How dare you think he's only successful because of daddy's money? The jackal is obviously really good at things. Did you hear he cut off his own hand that one time? Wow. Going back to (laughs) the things at hand. The beginning of this section, I always have a chuckle at how bad Darrow is at politics, but he absolutely recognizes it and that amuses me. The way he thinks about it is sad because he says, my tenure in the arch governor's employ is tenuous at best. My enemies grow by the day, but these new ones prefer whispers to razors. More and more do I believe the sons of Ares chose the wrong man. I am not made for the cold war of politics, not made for subtlety. Hell, I'd hide a boy in the gut of a horse any day, but I wouldn't know how to bribe someone properly if my life depended on it. He's not wrong. He really has sucked at this. It is so clear in that whole chapter. I mean, at times, Pliny is like, why are you always on the news, Darrow? Why are you always watching these things on your holopad? And Darrow's like, I'm not watching things of myself on the holopad. It's all just Pliny, just like making shit up. We see your browsing history, Darrow. We see that you just watch unicorn porn and hollows of yourself. (laughs) Darrow, we know your friend sends you unicorn porn, okay? Like, just admit it admit you like it i find it funny that they're obviously tracking the shit that he does on his data pad and they don't don't mention the unicorn (laughs) maybe even plenty plenty's like i know this is a thing that is realistically happening but i feel like if i bring this up it'll make the rest of my lives sound fake yeah plenty is a little bitch so if he brought that up augustus might be like "Mm, plenty we know what you do in your free time so augustus would be like hey plenty like unicorn porn isn't even real okay like calm down and stop making shit up and plenty will be like no but it's right here and then augustus will be like plenty so you like unicorn porn like is that's what's happening i wish i had more insight than plenty likes unicorn porn but i think that's what i that's what i'm going with my biggest insight is plenty is a dick he's the worst Okay, maybe not the worst in this entire series, but he's fucking up there. He is a devious little shit. I will say this, though. We do get some really good insight from him on Red Society. And granted, some of this was probably, I don't want to say obvious, but if you read even just a little bit between the lines in book one, you could absolutely see some of these things. But 
he says, you're forgetting we designed red culture to be highly patriarchal. Their identity as people centers around the collection of resources to propagate the embryonic terraforming of Mars. Physically strenuous, grueling tasks performed by men. Tasks we don't let their women perform, even if they are capable, pursuant to the stratification protocol. So you see, it can't be a woman. He's talking about how Aries can't be a woman because no roughneck ruster would follow a man or a woman who has never ridden a claw drill. And some of this is just like, hey, hey, you little dick. You're literally talking to a dude who used to ride a claw drill. You're talking to a heckin' hell diver. Chill your pants. But also, that's a lot of very specific insight. I don't want to say it's a show don't tell moment because that's not entirely true. But it was a way for Pierce Brown to tell us more about the ins and outs of how Red Society was designed without having it just be like, and in red society, we are a patriarchal society. You know what I mean? Like they're having a conversation about the sons of Aries and why Aries can't be a woman. And in that conversation, the author is able to insert. It's natural. It's not one of those weird, and let me pause for some exposition. Mm -hmm. Let me Mm -hmm. detail my plan to you while I laugh maniacally in the corner. This makes sense for the way this conversation to go, and it gives us information in a way that feels natural and isn't a info dump. Like, it is an info dump, but it's an info dump in the sense that it makes sense for this character, because this character seems like the type of dude who'd be like, actually, no, I'm smarter than you for this, this, and this. So, like, shut up, okay, because I am smarter than you. I'm gonna be real. I don't think I hate plenty as much as you do, but I'm sure that may change in time. Mostly because I'm just like, at least I respect this dude for going about and trying to be like politically manipulative instead of like murderously manipulative. Well, I also thought in some ways this was a sort of a backhand, but real compliment to what he considers the best of red society, stating that it has to be someone who was who would drive a claw drill would have to would have the guts and the capabilities to be the son of Aries. It's funny because it's almost like he's saying the Reds are sexist, but lol, it's because we made them that way. Plitty designs a sexist society. Plitty turns around two minutes later. Wow, they're so sexist. (laughs) And I will just say, like, I just finished reading this book called The Naming by Allison... Crogan, I think is her name. And it's a series. It's like the Pelinor series or something like that. I liked the book okay, but the biggest problem with that book was, and I actually stopped reading it halfway through to continue reading more Red Rising because I was just kind of exhausted with it, was it's basically like a Lord of the Rings style travel log where this dude is spending the entire trip schooling this young girl on their world it's the exact opposite of this right none of it is natural it's like oh it's time for me to teach you more things about how things work here is a long description of how things work going from that to this it just really brought this out for me as to how good it was that it was part of the conversation this way and not just a generic info dump See, I was amused for another reason. My um, amusement came from, this is a sexist society that is built on rules that kind of make sense in that, like, the golds, when they designed this, they were like, ah, yes. So the reason the guys are the only claw people is because the guys are stronger. And yeah, bullshit. But, like, also, like, there's like a real rule that kind of makes sense. I've been reading a lot of Stormlight and my favorite right now about Stormlight is that everybody who isn't Alethi likes to point out how like Alethi traditions are kind of whack. And they're like, 
The division between the sexes here makes no logical sense. The whole thing in Stormlight is that like this one group of people, the women are scholars and the men are not allowed to read because that is considered womenly and the men only fight and they only fight because that is the manly thing to do. Literally the whole society is built on a scribe following around every important dude so whenever he gets a letter she can read it to him and it's really really funny because not only is it absolutely illogical and hilarious and arbitrary but also everybody who isn't from this group of people is just like are they whack like isn't that whack like why do they do this it's very funny to me because at first like when i started reading i was like ew what a- i hate division between the sexes like this is so weird and then as time went on i was just like this is incredibly funny because it just mm-hmm. likes to poke fun at how hilarious it is when like shit is just arbitrarily decided as like not manly like it's not manly to read speaking of women and more so in this case strong women Darrow, after he gets cut off from Augustus, he is thinking about Mustang and their like last days together because they were hot and bothered for each other for a while after the Institute. And at one point, Mustang tried to convince Darrow to stay with her rather than going to the Academy to, in her words, be her father's warlord. She insisted, that's not what you are. That's not the man that I... But she didn't finish her sentence, and Darrow thinks, love, was that what we built in the year after the Institute? This also harkens back to the conversations he's already had with Roke, because he thinks, if so, the words stuck in her throat, because she knew, as I knew, that I had not given her all of me. I had not shared all that I am. Greedily, I kept secrets. And how could someone like her, someone with so much self-worth, bear herself and throw her heart at a man who gave so little in return? But he doesn't falter. She chose politics, governance, peace, which is what she thinks her people need. And he chose the blade because it is what his people, his real people, the reds, the low colors need. He says it fills him with a strange emptiness, knowing that he was enough for her when he was never enough for Eo. And he kind of comes to the conclusion that Roke was right. Which will broke, but Roke was right. He pushed Mustang away. We don't really see Mustang at all, hardly, in part one of this book. But whenever Darrow thinks of her, it's always in just the most, he's in love. <laughs> it's in the most positive terms. We broke up, but I still love her so much. Yeah, she loved me for what I was. Eo didn't even do that. And she was my wife. <laughs> well, I think I think he has a crush. Yeah, a little bit. I also love how her and Roke apparently used to like go to the opera or ballets or both. They went and did artsy stuff together because Darrow's like, have fun guys, I don't want it. But then contrasting with that, after Darrow meets with Augustus and he's kind of in this mode of like, what do I do? I'm going to die, blah, blah, blah. He has this little tete-a-tete with Victra and he's wary of Victra because he thinks she always wants something and he compares her to her shitty sister. Antonia, yeah, remember Antonia, the bitch who killed Leah in book one, (laughs) who was just a duplicitous piece of shit in all of book one. The Jackal at least was like, yeah, sure, whatever. They're buying my way through the Institute. Gotta win, right? And Antonia is just over here just like playing all the sides, just being the worst, like going back on her own house and stuff. Ugh. But so far, Victor seems really great. I felt kind of bad for her a lot that Darrow was constantly like, oh... 
I don't know. She always wants something. She's going to use me. And poor Victor's just like, ugh. Antonia always ruins things. A part of me, like, I absolutely agree. But a bigger part of me is like, I need to wait and see if Victor betrays him. And then I'm like, shit, I'm thinking like Darrow. Victor, from the moment we met her, stood out to me. I never wanted to believe that she was anything like her sister. But also, I think that she's very consistent. She might not be a good person, but she is very consistent. And she's also so totes into Darrow. I think the stuff that happens next sells me on her. But at the beginning, like, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, she is also like, my sister's the worst. I'm not going to do anything wrong to you. And again, super not fair that she is saddled with her sister's moral baggage. But she does then bring Darrow to the jackal of all people, which is definitely like a side-eye moment. Victor, why are you doing anything with this guy? Well, in the defense of the jackal, which, you know, is hard. Both Victra and the jackal in many ways are similar in that they are transactional people and that they will have allies for convenience. And I, I wouldn't say that in Victor's case, she would betray those allies, but she will cut ties to those allies once it's no longer convenient. Gray areas of right and wrong to get to her own goals. And I think the Jackal does that to an even higher level. When Darrow meets with him, it is kind of funny because during their conversation, he literally brings up gold hypocrisy, which I thought of all people, it was a really great turn for him to be the one who's like, these fucking hypocrites, they despise me because I ate students. But it's such hypocrisy. What else was I to do? We're told to win and I did my best. And then they criticize, act noble as though they didn't commit murder themselves. Madness. Now, to be fair, I'm pretty sure that they did straight up murder a student and start eating that student. It was like, yes, there was no other food, but they're like, "Mm, who's the weakest? Like, not somebody who was necessarily sick or injured or anything. They're like, who's the weakest? Who can we kill and eat so that we survive? Which, like, cool story, bro. Still cannibalism. In a way, though, he's so right. His level of, like, willingness to do whatever to win is exactly what gold society wants and then they turn around and they pretend to have morals about it and then they're suddenly like oh no this is the line you went too far he's absolutely right i hate it i do hate the jackal i i think he's a fucking psychopath in a way he's like the most on the same level as darrow right now in regards to like seeing the hypocrisy the fact that the jackal has allied himself with a bunch of low colors because they hate the sovereign and also allied himself with like this crime syndicate. And in the end, they're just a piece of his puzzle and one he's only going to try to put in power so that they can kill off the real menace, which dun dun dun, <laughs> the sons of Ares. So that's a bit of a cliffhanger, but no worries because we still have chapters eight to 11 to talk about. So, yep, the Jackal believes that the Sons of Arius are on their way to becoming a dire threat to the society, and he needs to do something about it. But he needs a figurehead for his movement, and why, of course, he wants that to be Darrow. And he doesn't even care that Darrow is a laughingstock. Granted, it would be entirely hypocritical for Jackal, of all people, to care about that. So Darrow agrees to be the sword to the Jackal's scepter, but only on the condition that Mustang can't be hurt. Oh, and that gets Servo and the rest of the Howlers back from their far reaches where they were apparently sent by Pliny to split them up from Darrow. 
But before more plans can be hatched, they are interrupted by a pink. And not just any pink, it's Evie, the wing girl that he met at Mickey's club back when he was still a red. Except, like, Evie no longer has wings. Good for her, I think. The jackal insists that Evie takes Darrow off to show him a good time. And conveniently, this also allows her to save Darrow from the bomb that she had planted under the jackal's table. But Darrow slips away from her, and as the AC screens throughout the bar show many other bombings occurring all over Luna, Darrow drives in and saves the jackal? What? Well, okay, but now Darrow has also grabbed a data pad from one of the Reds who was with Evie, and he uses it to track down their hideout where he finds not just her, but Mickey as well. Darrow chastises Evie for the bombing, which killed a bar full of low colors and attempts to question Mickey, who Darrow notes seems tired and vulnerable even before it becomes clear that Mickey isn't there by choice. And then, when Darrow demands to know where Dancer is and to know who is in charge, out steps another blast from the past. Ugh, bomb pun. Ugh, it's Harmony. She tells him that Dancer is dead and that Mickey is carving them a mini army so that they can strike back at gold. Oh, and now that Darrow is back, she obviously wants his help too. Specifically with bombing the gala he is slated to attend. Darrow tries to refuse, but Harmony presses him, eventually revealing that she has the full recording of Ao's death. And it reveals her last words to her sister Dio. She told her sister to hide the crib that she was building for her and Darrow's baby. Because yes, Eo was pregnant when she was hanged, and in hearing this, something in Darrow breaks. And then he has a different kind of red rising moment when it's anger that takes over. At which point he agrees to do whatever Ares wants. After touching base with the Jackal, he returns to the Citadel, where he spends his days locked in a haze trying to forget his babe. What? Too soon? No, but really. Darrow does spend the days leading up to the gala, withdrawing from his gold friends, while Augustus is made to answer for how the heckity heck the Sons of Ares spread from Mars to Luna. As the gala and his appending bombing draw ever closer, he wonders if he can sacrifice Roke, and it is only when Darrow's valet Theodora spills wine all over his white gala suit that he doesn't know how to respond to her obvious worry and concern that he realizes no, he can't sacrifice Roke, his much warmer friend, who would have had the proper reaction to this situation. And so Darrow pays Rook a visit just before they are supposed to leave, and after a very moving conversation between the two of them, including Rook admitting that he was going to try to buy Darrow's contract, Darrow drugs his friend to keep him from attending the gala. It's a betrayal, of course, but one that Darrow believes will keep Rook safe, even though by doing this, it means that even if he does survive the body himself, everyone will know who done it. However, from the moment they arrive for the gala, things are already out of whack. First, the Augustus troop is forced to share a lift with another family, the fault. And then on top of that, they're told they have to leave their obsidian and gray guards behind. No one is happy about any of this, but Augustus points out that they don't have a choice but to attend, and so up they go to the roof of the Sovereign's Tower. Once there, Darrow is first accosted by Antonia, who he brushes off with a rude comeback courtesy of their former house Mars Proctor Fitchner, which by the way involves something about Antonia having chlamydia. <laughs> and then, oddly enough, Darrow decides to slide up to Carnus Obalona. You know, the very man who beat him at the Academy, both in the final test and literally. Yet in this moment, even Nasty Carnus is, well, not friendly, but he apparently knows better than to pick another fight right now. Instead, he merely draws Darrow's attention to the arrival of someone important. Guys, it's Mustang. And she's escorted by none other than Cassius in... 
more ways than one. Darrow is understandably upset, but he also knows Mustang isn't the type to be with his enemy out of sheer spite. And so he stalks out of the gala, taking a lift down to a forested area where he can be alone with his intrusive thoughts. Yeah, so dramatic, right? In this case, though, those thoughts actually help him because he realizes, fucking finally, yeesh, that bombing the gala is wrong, isn't what Eo would have wanted. Instead, he decides to shake things up in his own way by inciting something that terrifies the golds more than anything else. Darrow, you see, is going to start a civil war. I want to start this discussion by reading a quote regarding Darrow's thoughts on Evie once he meets back up with her after the bombing. He says, despite her giggling, she's all sensuality and beauty with willowy arms and a slow, intimate smile that echoes none of the grief killing nearly 200 people should mark her with. The winged girl has become a carrion bird and she doesn't seem to have noticed. I wonder if she'd smile so broadly if she had to kill all those people with a knife. How easy we make mass murder. What a heckin' mood. That moment when it's a little bit too real. Yeah, a lot easier to uh, pull a mass murder when you're not thinking about the people you're killing because it's just a bomb or a semi-automatic rifle versus having to actually, like, stab people with a knife. We learn very quickly that Harmony kidnapped Mickey to carve them an army. It's amusing to both me and Darrow that she thinks that a hundred carved soldiers can cut gold deeper than ever before. It's like she's so far out of her depth, she has no idea. It's just very sad in a pathetic way. Oh, especially when Darrow is like, my howlers were just the dregs of the Institute, not even the deadliest of golds. Mm-hmm. And even they could shred any hundred person unit that these terrorists put together. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's underselling his howlers. They were trained much better than the other golds at the Institute by Severo. They have far more deadly skills than most. I don't know that that's really what he's talking about, though. Because, like, regardless of how the Howlers were successful, because they were, they were successful because they worked to their own strengths, which were not common gold strengths. Because Mm -hmm. the common gold strengths are, hello, we have these funky snake swords, and we can and will effectively stab you with them because we are taller than you, faster than you, stronger than you. And I think that's the point he's trying to make. Even the Howlers are weak by traditional gold standards. They make do because they learned to work around that, and then they trained to work around that, which makes them highly effective and good. But the Howlers are the exception. They're the unskilled people compared to the majority of golds, because the majority of golds, they're just naturally good at war. It's just their pocket skill. The Howlers might be unskilled in the fancy fighting shit, like the razor and cravat. That doesn't mean they are unskilled entirely. But like, I think that's the point he's trying to make, though. The unskilled, not formerly trained people who managed to scrounge together and learn how to get around that can still defeat everybody. What are you going to do in the face of the skilled and trained people? It's interesting and also correct that Darrow separates Harmony and her crew from the sons he used to know. Like he refers to Mm -hmm. them as terrorists when he never felt that way about the sons that he knew when he was training. The vibes are fully different, which is... Mm -hmm. And Daryl reminds Harmony that the point of making him a gold was so that the sons would know how they think. And she's like, no, 
It was to position you to strike at their jugular. I'm pretty sure that's not what Dancer said, though. Pretty sure that is, like, literally not the point. The point was here, and Harmony's just, like, looking this way. Purposefully. She has that literal meme of, like, that stick figure saying something, and then, like, the words, the point, floating over their head. That is her. We also, in another really good, again, don't want to call it a show, don't tell moment, because it is kind of a tell moment, but... In a really good way, we get more world building regarding the pinks. And this is more so than the reds, more so than stuff we learn later in the series about other colors. We learn that pinks are raised with implants. Like Evie tells Darrow that pinks are raised with implants in their bodies that cause constant pain, except for, I have to imagine it's like a button or something, right? Where the golds who are controlling them can just press the button when the pinks obey. So they are in constant pain, except for when they do what the gold wants. And then the gold, let's say, presses the button and the pain goes away. They're trained to obey through literally experiencing pain all of the time, except for when they're given explicit, as far as I am reading this, tasks, orders, whatever. And the device is not taken away until they are 12. Evie believes because of this that golds need to feel pain and to fear it and to learn that they can't hurt low colors without consequence. Poor Darrow is like, I thought golds were broken. (laughs) I thought it was more gross than that the way oof i hate this okay first of all pinks were already the worst part of the society in my mind Mm -hmm. because they are basically like bred to be sex slaves but the way that i read this and i believe the way that it was implied was that they have that implant and they have that constant pain until they are about 12 years old and the only reason it goes away is that they begin physically training to please golds and the first time they physically please a gold, the pain no longer continues. So they think that that's what pleasure is when it's just the absence of pain. That is part of it. To be honest, I don't want to spoil anything. There's a worse part of it, but we don't learn that quite yet. Amazing. Anyway, poor Darrow is like, God damn, I thought golds were fucked up. He tells Harmony that he's sorry she lost everything she loved, but he is still fighting for his family who are still in a mine. And for Eo's dream of a better world, not a bloodier one. Which, go Darrow. You're trying so hard, my dude. Wrong audience for this, but you're trying. Until, of course, Harmony shows him the full recording of Eo's death. And he learns that she was pregnant when they hung her. And uh, that was a reveal. The first time I read this series, none of that crossed my mind. So when this was revealed in Golden Sun, I was like, fuck. I sort of... I like had to put the book down and just breathe for a second. I was like fully shook. And then I was like, oh no, Darrow had just sort of started to become a person again. This isn't going to be good. And then he goes full suicide bomber and I'm like, ah, yes, this isn't good. And of course, you know, I did have the spoiler of knowing that, you know, there's still like the whole rest of the book. So I was like, I know he doesn't do it or he does it very, 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 very slowly. For It was one of those things where... I still, to this day, I'm like, really? How did I not catch that that was probably what it was when she called her sister up? I also went back and I obsessively reread those sections. There is no hint. There is none. 
I wish there was a hint because that would make it a little more satisfying to me because I always love it when like authors do that thing where they're like, here's the big reveal and you saw the hint all along. But that's just that's just me. I also I also do enjoy a big reveal like this that's just like, here, have some more crippling trauma. The only hint is that he talked to her sister instead of Daryl, right? We always knew there was some secret there, but like, I don't know. I always pictured like a more like chill secret, like, hey, please take care of Darrow, or, I don't know, make sure he doesn't do anything batshit crazy, or, like, you know, normal sister requests, versus her talking to Darrow and being like, hey, don't do anything batshit crazy, whereas, you know, if she tells her family to do it, it might actually follow through. But, like, I thought it was, like, normal-level secret, not, oh, they straight-up murdered a pregnant lady-level secret. On this particular reread, in which I marked... Red Rising so many times that there's barely like 10 pages that go by without a little sticky tab on them. I will say that EO, the way she was acting about the Laurel stuff and when she was like, I have something for you. I do think that is a hint that she was going to tell him something. But then when he thought they were going to win the Laurel and they lost the Laurel and things went so bad, she was just like, nah, never mind. But I think that it's so, so tiny and subtle that you would only ever pick it up if you're looking for it and have read the whole book like so many times. The thing about these books is sometimes you can predict, it's kind of like the traps within traps within traps and plans and plots within plans and plots. You always know that's going to happen because it happened so often in the first book that it's like, clearly this is Pierce Brown's writing device. It's, it's good. He does it well, but you can still kind of predict it. And this was so subtle that it was like, it's just barely there if you've read these books like several times and you are really, really, really digging in and like looking at the way EO words things and stuff. And even then it could be missed, but if it is there at all, and I do think it is, but I think it is so stupid subtle that it's just barely there. So Darrow, obviously, he says he's going to do whatever Ares wants, which in this case is apparently what Harmony wants because... I guess this is the way things are going now with the Sons of Ares, supposedly. But he goes back to the Citadel. He is withdrawing from his friends and he's like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's avoiding Roke and Victra, despite the fact that like earlier he told Roke that they were going to hang out and drink some wine and wax on about Quinn's long legs and stuff because Roke is in love with Quinn now, apparently, even though she hasn't been around like this entire book and for a while, even before this. But I feel like that's a rogue thing is to be in love with somebody who's kind of far away and unattainable. Just saying. Darrow, finally, he has that sort of situation with Theodora where she is so anxious because she's so worried about him. It's sweet and sad. She cares about him. She cares about him so much that for the first time since she's been with him and possibly one of like very few if ever times in her life as a rose makes a mistake and spills wine all over his white costume suit whatever the fuck it is it's like i felt bad for theodora even knowing that darrow would never beat her or yell at her for something so stupid i still felt bad for her because like the way he is reacting to it, like how he says he sees just the abject like fear in her eyes. She seems so chill and so cool. And I fucking hate that this is. I love Theodora and it proves the point that like Darrow's trying his best, but to everybody else, he's, 
he has become the monster by physically transforming. Frankenstein's monster or Mr. Hyde? Both. It's because of Theodora spilling that wine and the fact that he's just like, pat, pat. That's literally what happens. I feel Darrow in that moment because that's how I am when my friends get super upset about things. He realizes that his kind, warm friend Roke would have known better. That's when he decides, yeah, fuck no, I'm not letting Roke come to this gala where I'm going to bomb all of these golds. I can't let Roke die. Even though he knows that if he does survive, everybody's going to know it's him if Roke survives. He drugs Roke anyway. I do have to say, I love when he shows up at Roke's room and he's just sitting there perched very primly on the edge of his bed reading some book or book of poems or whatever. And he's like, uh, Tactus, when I'm reading, he thinks I'm not doing anything. And then he says, there is no greater plague to an introvert than the extroverted. I don't feel that because I am an extrovert, but I feel that for all of my friends who are introverted because I have heard enough. And also, Pierce, Pierce Brown, are you an introvert? It takes an introvert to know that information. Then Daryl and Rogue, they really do have like a sweet little conversation. And Rogue tells him his little pigeon story. They grow up together and love each other and they're separated by war and they think they'll never find each other again. But then when the war is over, they fly home and they do find each other again as they were always destined to return home and find, instead of the past, their future. Because home isn't where you're from, it's where you find light when all grows dark. And he tells Darrow to find his home, that it may not be in the past, but find it and you'll never be lost again. And as much as Rourke frustrates me, the fact that he doesn't know anything about who Darrow really is... But the fact that he says these words, particularly, is so poignant. To be honest, it frustrates me a little that it's not this that changes Darrow's mind about the bombing. That your home may not be in the past. Like, surprise, motherfucker! It's not your dead wife who was apparently pregnant when she died. You have other things to live for. Live for more. Literally what your fucking wife told you to do. And this isn't what changes his mind? Darrow, you're a frustrating, frustrating person let's be fair despite being genetically altered to do great on exams darrow is not the swiftest knife in the drawer yeah he's a little thick no no he's not like he's smart but he lacks emotional intelligence yep which is proven time and time again in the earlier chapters especially of this book where he is already just not revealing his plans to his friends maddening Fucking maddening. Communication, my assholes. But they go to the gala. There's the whole thing where, like, oh, heaven forbid House Augustus has to ride in the same elevator as this, like, supposed lower house, House Fault. Which, by the way, is Lilith's house. Lilith being the jackal's little... Bone Uh, rider. Also, I thought the concern, yes, it was, oh my God, we're amongst a lesser house. How dare we have to share? But I thought it was more, what do you mean we need to leave our personal guards? Fucking Bolognos are here. It was a combination of both. Having to ride in the elevator with any other house. It's the sovereign showing the fact that she can take them down a peg period. Uh, yes. And that's already worrisome because they're already in trouble because Augustus has been in trouble for letting, quote unquote, the sons of Ares spread beyond Mars to Luna. Like, okay, dude. Terrorists gonna terrorist. Like, 
If your society was good enough that people didn't hate it and feel the need to terrorist, well, mm-hmm. actually, no, I, I, I fully take that back. I do not enjoy a Harmony's decision-making process. No, thank no. you. Nope. Also, no. I do not agree with just, like, the terming of them as ter- as Sons of Ares as terrorists. Like, just not even... I know that's what they call them in the books and stuff and, like, what the golds view them as, but just, like, nah, man, that ain't what that is. Y'all society sucks. Well, obviously the golds are always going to refer to them as terrorists. The only reason Darrow in Golden Sun begins to refer to them as terrorists is because they are bombing areas oh, where yeah, they're no, no. killing local, like they're yeah. killing their own people. Right. Yeah. So. No, no. And I agree with that, that what Harmony's doing is like terrorist worthy, but I think I can't believe I'm saying this, but I agree with Augustus that like the bombing is not in character for what sons of Aries is trying to do. And like Augustus's mm-hmm. whole, like, I don't think that's de- them. Like, I haven't read further, but I like low-key think Harmony's gone rogue. There's there's absolutely no way. Like everything she's doing is like sus on many levels. And the fact that she's like no longer on Mars is sus. And I'm like, I'm like the fact that she's bombing everybody and like quietly claiming it as Aries, but not loudly claiming it as Aries until now is very sus. I just I think she's gone rogue. She's got a separate terrorism sense of Aries. And the regular sense of Aries is like Happy and good, led by, well, Dancer's dead, so led by somebody else. But I don't even know that I believe her that Dancer's dead, because she's clearly full of lies and terrorism. So Darrow gets up to the gala, and he, for whatever reason, is like, I'm gonna go hang out with Karnas, because, like, I guess at least he knows Karnas is gonna be, like, honest with him. Darrow tells Karnas, they're talking about pride, and Darrow says, pride is just a shout into the wind. And Karnas replies, I will die. You will die. We will all die, and the universe will carry on without care. All we have is that shout into the wind. How we live, how we go, and how we stand before we fall. So you see, pride is the only thing. And I'm just kind of like, Karnas, you're right. We all die. Everything goes on. And we all have that shout into the wind. How we live and how we go. How we stand before we fall. Karnas, I I get your point, but also, buddy, I don't think that's pride. I think you decided it was pride for yourself. Mm -hmm. But um, other people experience other human emotions and relations to people, which, yes, it is our shout in the wind. It is the only thing we leave. It is our legacy. But our legacy isn't just our pride, bud. You okay there? I feel like your mom wasn't good for you, honey. Yeah, your legacy is the things that you do and how you treat people and a hundred other things, right? Not pride by itself, but okay, Karnas, you do you. Of course, their whole conversation ends when Karnas is like, ha ha ha, you won't be missed because Mustang comes in on Cassius's arm. And I did just want to point out how I really liked how Darrow, despite being jealous and upset, rightfully so, on the upset part, Jealousy is jealousy. It is what it is. Regarding Mustang being with Cassius, he knows that the real reason why he's hurting is because he knows that Mustang is not being petty. Mm -hmm. That if she is with his enemy, if she is with Cassius, it's because she cares about him. I was going to say, in a way, that's like so much sadder. Oh, it's so sad. So much sadder. I was like, a part of me would rather want her to just be with him because she's petty. Because if she was my ex, that I was deeply in love with I would rather her be petty towards me and have me be her focus than have her genuinely care about somebody else who was also my sworn enemy 
I hate all of this. Darrow, no. I'm so sorry, sweetie. Yeah, but, I mean, Cassius being his sworn enemy is somewhat understandable. Cassius's behavior was somewhat understandable. Cassius's behavior is somewhat understandable, yes. Cassius is still a fucking hypocrite. Thank and I, you! As much as I get Cassius being upset, if he had an ounce of sympathy in his body for like what other people were forced to do what did he expect Darrow to do roll over and fucking die did he roll yes. over and fucking die? no he didn't don't be a hypocrite if you can't do it yourself don't you fucking dare ask somebody else to do it well i want to point out here and this is a little bit of a throwback pollux one of the guys who eventually allies himself with titus but literally only because he's trying to survive sort of thing he allies himself with whoever he thinks is gonna win and pollux tells darrow i was paired with a girl that's the thing like oh when darrow killed your brother sat with julian's head in his lap and sobbed over this kid who he barely knew dead body because he knew julian was good and he didn't want to have to do it but he also knew that he had a goal and that goal was to get through the institute he did not want to do it julian was even like you can go and like you can escape here and daryl's like nah dude you don't really understand the rules and regardless of the absolute hypocrisy of it though because yeah. like the problem isn't, it's not even the hypocrisy. If Cassius had any caring about who the actual villain is, he would know and realize that the villain is Augustus for getting Julian the Institute in the first place and for putting him up against somebody, anybody, a tool who would be capable enough to kill him. Cassius knows what the game is. Cassius knows what the rules are. So the fact that he is taking all of his aggression out on the tool instead of the bearer is absolutely absurd. He's a shitty person. In this instance, like, Cassius could have, I get him not being friends with Darrow. I get him hating Darrow. I don't get him knifing Darrow and ditching him in the stream when Darrow was his best bet to be an ally so they could win. So Cassius could have been Primus versus Jackal, the son of Adrius, so that he could have gained another stronger ally for House of Bologna. Cassius is not only a hypocrite and a jackass, he's also he's, an idiot. Yeah, he's dumb. He dumb. I don't like him so much because <laughs> I dislike him so, so, so much because like, I get everybody in this society has clearly faced loss. And if you're a gold, you are clearly conditioned to know what the rules are and how things work. And there's been a war ongoing with these two families. Like, he gets it. Like, he knows what they've done. And, like, the fact that he's out here and he's blaming nobody McStranger dude from, like, far off shitty dead orphan planet. Cassius sucks! Thank you. Darrow I will sucks. never get over how much Cassius sucks. I would like to say that. I don't really think there's anything Cassius could do for me to no longer think he sucks. Except for being like, hey dude, I was a hypocrite and I sucked and I'm really sorry for not hating the mastermind and hating you when you didn't have a choice. And unless that similar or exact speech comes from his mouth, uh, not thanks. I don't know. Like I said, it's still really, it's still really telling that Daryl's like, fuck, my girl's with my enemy. And like, she wouldn't be with him if she didn't care about him. It's because of that that he like kind of just storms out. I guess he doesn't really storm out. He just leaves. I think if he'd stormed out, it would have caused more of a scene. He but... just quietly walked away in the most subtle manner that Adaro possesses. 
Yeah, which isn't very subtle, but it's subtle enough in this case. And when he goes down and he has a tete-a-tete with his intrusive thoughts in the forest, and he's thinking about Harmony's plan to have him bomb the gala, and he thinks killing them proves nothing. It solves nothing. EO said, if I rose, others would follow, but I've not yet risen. I've not yet done as she asked of me. I'm not an example. I am an assassin. I do not have an excuse to give up, to hand her dream to others. Ares never knew Eo. He never saw the spark in her. I did. Before I draw my last breath, I must build the world she wanted to raise our child in. That was her dream. That was why she sacrificed, so others would not have to. And I will not let others decide my fate. Not now. I do not trust in Ares if it means I must reject Eo. Not if it means I must sacrifice trust in myself. And so instead, he decides to start that one thing Gold's fear most, Civil War. I can't believe I haven't read more. I need to know what he does. I need to know. Any last thoughts on Darrow deciding to not be a suicide bomber? Very glad he didn't do that. Suspected he wouldn't because there's the rest of the series. Was like 99% sure that wasn't the way it was going to go. But there was also like three seconds of him being like, but my pregnant wife is dead. And I'm like, I know, buddy, you're not having a good time. I, I mean, granted, it would have been a great Ned Stark moment had he done so. And then they switched POV characters to, who knows, Severo or something. But uh. <laughs> Zoom in on Cerebro looking at <laughs> unicorn porn. I just assume Severo is the secret author to uh, Bang from Behind by the T-Rex. That nominated <laughs> for the Hugo many years ago. Severo is actually the author of My Immortal. This is the type of shit that I imagine Severo is sending to Darrow. Look at this awful shit that I've been enjoying in my... Uh, exile. Kind of exile, yeah. How, on that note, as we close out this episode... We just want to give a shout out to our heroes, to our patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts, Jonathan and Nami. Don't forget that you can always hit us up at Sagas and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube now. Or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any questions or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We will be back on Wednesday, November 16th to cover part two of Golden Sun. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.